Um, Well, the guy who wrote this book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, was a guy who really had it difficult since he came to faith in Jesus. I mean, sometimes you you become a Christian, and people told you before you were a Christian that you become a Christian, it makes your life better in every way, and then you become a Christian, and you realize that they were lying, Um, that, that there are some things that are much better. There's real joy there. There's a real future that's there. But then there are also some trials that you go through and some, some difficulties that you live through because you're a Christian. And if there was anyone who had to live through trials and difficulties because he was a Christian, it was the Apostle Paul. Um, his life, from the time that he put his faith in Christ, from a human perspective, went downhill. It got bad fast. I mean, before he knew Jesus, things were good. He was well-educated. He was probably well-liked, respected in the synagogue. He, he spoke a few different languages, probably traveled pretty often. Um, he had status. He had some wealth. He probably had some local fame. Everything was good for the Apostle Paul. And then Jesus came and disrupted the whole thing. Jesus came and messed all of that up. And he gave him something that was better in a life with Jesus. But he also made a lot of life very difficult. In fact, in one place when Paul's describing some of his trials in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. So he's gone from status and education and fame to countless beatings and being near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which was not just his way of coping with the beatings. This means they threw rocks at him. Like, this was was bad. He says, um, not a trip to Colorado. They threw rocks. But he says, three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So this life for Jesus, for Paul, had been a difficult one. Uh, There had been bad turns left and right, and then he writes this book of Ephesians to some of the people that he had led to Christ in in Ephesus while he's probably under house arrest. Uh, He describes himself in Ephesians as a prisoner. He says that he's wearing chains, and historically, it looks like there was this house that he rented, and he was in that house under arrest, and five years after that arrest, he was beheaded for his faith. So things were bad for him in a lot of ways because he was a Christian. Soon he would die because he was a Christian. And you might expect that when he writes these letters that his tone would be nothing but misery. You might expect a lot of, woe is me. Uh, My sorrows are so bad. Jesus has been unfair to me. Why is he allowing all this stuff to happen to me? But instead you see something completely different. Look at verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
So here he is under house arrest, chains on his feet, headed toward his death, and instead of being focused on his own problems, he's drawing close to God in prayer, and he's thinking about other people. And this is remarkable. I mean, this is a remarkable characteristic that we see in Paul's letters all over the place, that even though his life was bad, even though he was going through sorrows, he has great things to say about the things that he's giving thanks for, about the people that he's ministered to. I mean, you see it in 1 Corinthians, where this is a book where there's so much wrong with the people in Corinth. But in chapter 1, he says, I don't cease to give thanks to God for you always, night and day, remembering you in my prayers. So he remembers them, he's thankful for them, and he's far more affected by the fact that God has worked in those people than he is by all the deficiencies in those people. He's more affected by the good work of God in his life than he is by all the bad things that are happening, even though the bad things that are happening are really bad. You see it in Philippians, where he's in in jail, things have gone badly, but then he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It seems like he's even in the darkest of circumstances, he's got this spin on things in his mind where he's focused on what's good and what's positive. And the only exception in all of his letters that, that I know of to him being positive about things is the book of Galatians. And that was a church that was actually running after false gospels where they thought we were saved by Jesus plus something else. And that book is just pretty much him nailing them the whole time. But the rest of his books, he's thankful for things, he's optimistic about things, and it's not that he ignored problems. Now, he didn't pretend that problems weren't problems and sins weren't sins, but he was genuinely, on a heart level, far more affected by the evidence of God's grace working around him than he was by all the bad things in his life, even though in his life, things were bad. And when we look at this passage, I just think, I want what Paul had, because I know my faith isn't there yet. I mean, my tendency is to gravitate toward what's wrong. To, to look for a problem and to look for something almost to be discouraged about rather than encouraged. And I can look around and see a hundred good things that God is doing, a hundred encouraging things, a hundred ways he's, he's blessing, but I can see one discouraging thing, one dark thing, and that can be the thing that really affects my personality, affects my mood. And that's not how Paul was. And this matters hugely for us because for any of us, if we're going to be close to people and stay close to people, we have to be this way. Because otherwise, we'll be disappointed with people. I mean, we'll see some of the good things in their lives, but there will always be something bad that we can find with any person, and we'll want to run away from people altogether if we don't learn to be more affected by the good things than the bad things. It's like when you get that, that box of chocolates sampler for Christmas, where you've got nine good chocolates, but then you have that one that's full of, like, NyQuil or something, and you... <laughs> you, you bite into that, and it's horrible, and it would be easy to run away and say, I want nothing to do with chocolate. And people are like that. I mean, we, we get close and we see these virtues and these blessings in their lives and the ways God's, God has worked. But then we see that one thing in their life that's like filled with NyQuil and we're just saying, man, people are gross. I want nothing to do with them. And so it would be easy to live a life where we're isolated and alone because we can't find anyone good enough for us. It would be easy to not be a vital part of any church and just be a fringe part of a church because we know as you get closer to the church, you're going to see those deficiencies, and you always will, and I promise they're here. So it would be easy to stay on the fringes in every relationship. It would be easy to stay on the fringes at, at church. It would be easy to try to build some shallow relationships where you're really just classmates together who are working through the same small group curriculum instead of people who are really going deep with one another. It would be easy to not be a vital part of anything because really reality 
would be too depressing. People are too depressing if we don't learn to find our joy by seeing the grace of God, even in the midst of otherwise messy circumstances. So what does it take to be that way? It takes really three big beliefs that we'll see in this passage. Um, Number one, we're going to see it takes a belief in the work of God in our past. Number two, it takes a belief in the power of God in the present. And then number three, it takes a belief in the reign of God in the future. And these are things that Paul believes and things that he's praying that these Ephesians would believe so that they could have a little bit of what he has. So let's start with that belief in the work of God in the past. I mean, first of all, verse 15 here, he starts by saying, for this reason, I give thanks. What's this reason? Well, it's the stuff that we talked about last week, verses 1 through 14. The fact that for somebody to come to faith in Jesus has taken this absolutely massive work of God. That if anyone anywhere believes in Jesus, it means that before the foundation of the world, that was part of God's plan. It means understanding that there's a huge gap between us and Christ, and that Jesus Christ came and died to bridge that gap. So if anyone anywhere believes in Jesus, that is an absolutely huge miracle. And in verse 15 here, he says, I I see the work of God because you have this faith in Christ that's making you believe in God and love other people. And neither one of those things is natural. Because people innately, we want to be our own gods. We want to worship and serve ourselves. Innately, we're selfish. We don't want to love and give ourselves for anybody else. And he looks at these Christians and he says, I saw that work of God that was started among you. He says, I was there for 18 months. I spent time with you. I saw God bringing people from death to life and making you new, making you loving, giving you faith. And the fact that God started that work gives me an awful lot of reason for joy because when God starts something, he finishes something, even if I don't know what he's doing. I mean, Paul's now uh, disconnected from these people. He's disconnected by distance, disconnected by time. But the thing that gives him joy is remembering that God worked in the past and knowing that God will keep working in the future. He says something similar in Philippians 1.6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He said, I just know that when God starts something, he finishes it. And the fact that he started something gives me all the confidence in the world that he's at work and he's going to still be active and keep working. Uh, When I was 11 years old, our family, uh, we grew up in Orchard Park, New York. We had a pool put in. And um, my dad was a used car dealer, owned a small used car dealership, Maloney Auto Sales in Hamburg, New York. And so um, at at a small car car dealership, money was very up and down. Um, Lots of peaks, lots of valleys. And so for a lot of years, he was saying, we're going to have a pool put in, and then the bottom would fall out because winter would come, and nobody buys cars in the winter, and so it wouldn't happen that year. And then year after year, it was almost like it's coming, but then it's not coming. And then a salesman for pools came to our house one day, my dad talked to him for a long time, and it looked like it was coming, and then it didn't happen. But then one day in the spring, the backhoes came. And they started digging up the backyard. And at that point, my brothers and I, we knew this was going to be finished. This was actually going to happen because you don't dig up the yard and start that project unless you're sure you're going to finish it. And so Paul says, man, God started faith in these Ephesian Christians. He started something big. He brought the backhoes into their life. He brought them to the place where they actually desired Christ. And that goes against everything in our human nature. And so if God did a miracle that big and that huge, then we can have every confidence that he'll continue to work. So Paul found joy even in the middle of dark circumstances, even in the middle of not knowing what God is doing, 
by remembering the past power of God, how it had invaded lives, and saying if God started that, he must finish it. And we need to learn this because the truth is we go through seasons as Christians where we don't see God working like we used to. Or we don't hear God speaking as much as we used to. And we remember the past. We remember when we first came to faith in Jesus, how he just started changing everything in our lives. And it seemed like things were happening fast. Our character was changing. Our thoughts were changing. We were growing in all this knowledge, this excitement about Christ. And then it seems like for a while we just plateaued. And it's easy to say, well, what is God doing? Why is God doing this? Has he left me? But Paul was able to look at the past and say, God started something. And if I can remember the the power of his work in the past, then it can give me some confidence for for the present that he's still alive, still good, and still acting. So he wants us to believe the work of God in our past. And then next, he wants to believe the active power of God that's working in us now. Look at verse 17. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he's praying here that God would give them more wisdom and that they would know Jesus more, which, by the way, is a model prayer for us. And if you're in any kind of Christian leadership, if you're leading a grace group or you're leading a campus ministry or you're leading your kids to come to know Jesus, a lot of times we'll pray for their physical needs to be met. We'll pray for illnesses. We'll pray for financial provision. And that's all good. That's important stuff to pray for. But Paul here in this model prayer, he's praying that they would know Jesus more. Like this is the big thing he wants them to know. He wants their eyes to be open more to see how great Jesus really is. Because he knows that if they could see what a huge deal it is that they know Jesus, if they could see that the greatest thing in the universe is to be a Christian, it would change the way that they think about their present trials. I mean, remember in their city, when Paul went in and he preached about Jesus, there was a riot there. So people didn't readily receive Jesus. Some people did, and it started changing the economy in their city, but then others harshly opposed the gospel. And so they're living in in tough times where it's not popular in Ephesus to be a Christian. And he says, if you could just recognize what a huge, awesome thing it is that you're a Christian, it would give you some joy in the present. I mean, if you, on, on the same day, you got engaged and you got a paper cut, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be more consumed with the fact that you got engaged than you got a paper cut. So if a friend comes up to you and says, so is anything new? You're probably not going to say, yeah, I got this, this paper cut and I've been putting Neosporin on it and, and I wrapped it in a Band-Aid. I, I'm hoping it doesn't get infected. You're not even thinking about that. I mean, if, if, if they come up and they say, is anything new? You say, yeah, there's only one thing that's new. I got engaged. We're getting married. Everything's going to change. My life is heading in a different direction. And then if they say, okay, what's the Band-Aid? You say, oh, I got a paper cut. But I got engaged. (laughs) Like, that's the big deal. And Paul here says, man, if you could grasp what a huge deal it is that you're a Christian, then it can start to make some of your other trials look a little bit more like paper cuts. There is nothing better that can happen to a person than that we become a born-again child of God. Nothing better. There's no greater life circumstance. The greatest lottery winner, the greatest, most successful person in the world, the person with the most academic achievement, the person who wins the Super Bowl and has that moment where he's a Super Bowl MVP, it pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. There is nothing better. 
better than that. And he's praying, God, open their eyes so that they could see that. If we could see that, if we could see the immense power of God in our lives now, it would definitely change our inability to find joy in our dark circumstances. Because our darkest of circumstances really do end up being those paper cuts compared to the goodness of what's happened to us in us becoming Christians. And then he prays that they would know, next, verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He says, I want you to know about this inheritance that you have. This would be like if you grew up going to your grandpa's house and he always had this old painting hanging on his wall and you were always, you know, it kind of has some nostalgic value and, and you remember when you were a kid seeing that painting and then your grandpa passes on and he leaves that painting to you. And then you bring it home and you hang it on the wall and it doesn't really change your life at all. You look at it and you kind of remember your grandpa. It's got some happy memories, but it hasn't changed anything about the way you live. But then you have a friend come over and that friend has studied art and he's just looking at it. And he's fascinated and he gets close and he says, that's a Rembrandt. It's a lost Rembrandt painting. Those things can sell for tens of millions of dollars. At that moment, your life has changed. Now, your, your living room hasn't changed. It looks exactly the same. You have nothing more than you had earlier, but now all of a sudden you recognize how great this thing is that you have, and you start living differently. I mean, if you're worth tens of millions of dollars, there's a pretty good chance that, that your life changes. You start going to different websites, like the ones that sell the Caribbean cruises in the middle of winter in Rochester, and you say, I can afford that now. I can do that now. Everything's different because you recognize the greatness of what you have. And Paul says, you have Jesus. And that's a huge deal, but, but sometimes he's just like that painting without meaning that seems to be hanging on the wall. And he says, I want you to know the value of what you have. I want you to know the riches of your inheritance. I mean, do you know what this means that you have Jesus? Do you realize your sins are forgiven? Your biggest problem has been conquered. Death will not defeat you now. You won't ultimately finally die. You'll be spending eternity with your father. The deepest desires of your heart will be completely met. And five billion years from now, everything will be good and perfect for you because of what Jesus did for you. You'll inherit the earth as one of his kids. Do you realize what this thing is that's hanging on your wall? Christianity is not just this thing we've added to our life. It changes everything. He says, I want these Ephesian Christians to know the greatness of what they have. And I think if we start to grasp that, if we start to grasp that, that power of God that's at work in our lives and how big a deal it really is that we're Christians, it'll change the way we go through our trials. Now, I don't believe that all of our trials will go away. I know there are some Christians who will tell you that, that you can just like speak a different reality into existence. You just speak what you want reality to be and it will become that. I don't buy that at all. That's actually witchcraft. That's an incantation. That's a different team. We don't do that. But the truth is, we can go through our trials very differently as Christians because we start to realize what a big deal it is that we have Jesus. He goes on and he says, he wants them to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And here he's kind of grasping for words to describe the awesomeness of the fact that we know Jesus. And he uses these words in Greek. Immeasurable is the word hyperbalon. Uh, greatness is megathos. And then power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. So he, he's going for really big words to describe the power of God that's active in our lives. 
He says, I want you to know the hyper, mega power of God that is channeled for you if you believe in Christ. And if you want to know how powerful that power is, he says next, the end of verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So he says that hyper, mega power of God that it took to raise Jesus Christ from the grave, that power is for you. He says, man, if you believe that, that changes the way you react to your trials. Now for me, this is the struggle. My big struggle is not believing that God exists. There will be some passing moments of doubt, but usually they go away pretty quickly because for me, that just seems like an open and shut case. I think I look at nature. I look at the fact that people exist and we're as complex as we are, and pretty quickly I'm able to dismiss doubts about whether God exists or not. It just seems like there's a plan behind all of that. It's not long that I linger on those thoughts about whether God exists, but my big struggle is believing that not only does God exist, but he's for me. That's where it gets hard. Like, I know he's there, but what he's saying here, that, that the hyper-mega power of God is channeled on my behalf, and that God uses that to bless me, God uses that only for my good, that's a hard thing to believe. And sometimes my faith looks a little bit more like demon faith. I mean, demons, when they, they responded to Jesus, they knew who Jesus was, They believed that he existed. They believed that he was the son of God. But listen to what one of them says to him in Matthew 8. It says, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So notice how these demons had some of their theology right. Jesus is the son of God. But their view of Jesus was that he was there to torment them. And this pretty often can be our view of God. And we go through our trials, we go through our difficulties, and it's easy for us to look at God and say, God, are you against me? Because the job situation has stayed the same for years now, and it's not going away. The marriage has just felt broken for years, and it doesn't seem like it's changing. The relational situation hasn't changed. The sickness hasn't changed. And we have this view of God where we say, God, I know you're there, but are you just here to torment me? Are you just messing with me? Is everything just a test? Everything just a trial? Well, demons have belief like that. And Paul says, I want you to know that not only is there this hyper-mega power of God that's up there, but it's for you. It's for you. It's never against you. It's never to torment you. You're a Christian. And this is impossible to believe without believing in the cross because we know that we're guilty. I mean, I know that I've sinned against God. I know that I've been his enemy. And so, so justice really demands that the hyper-mega power of God be against me. It, it seems like I should be on the, the wrong end of that. I should be a, a victim of circumstances all the time because God's using his power against me. But on the cross, the hyper-mega power of God was channeled against Jesus, who was innocent. He took all the punishment that I deserve. He took all the wrath that I deserve. I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. I did deserve to have God against me, but Jesus absorbed all of that. And now as a Christian, Jesus, he's adopted me and called me his son. And I'll tell you this, the power that a good parent has is never against their children. A good parent uses their power for their children. And when God looks at us, he calls us sons and daughters. 
There, there can be trials we go through, but those trials are never because the power of God is against us if we're Christians. The power of God was channeled against Jesus. He absorbed it all, and now God is for us. He's working all things together for our good, everything, everything, every trial, every difficulty. He's working it all out for our good and for his glory. So Paul says, I want you to know what a big deal it is that God's worked in your past. I want you to know that the power of God is channeled for you right now in the present. And then he says, and I want you to know what the reign of God will look like going forward into the future. So verse 21, he he talks about the, the reign of Jesus. He says, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. She so says, Jesus is up over everything. Jesus is ruling and reigning. Jesus is the king over the greatest kingdom that's ever been, and his kingdom will march forward and he will rule over everything. In another place, scripture says this in Hebrews 12 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. She says, we as Christians are part of an unshakable kingdom. This kingdom that will move forward where Jesus reigns. But remember where Paul's writing this from. He's writing this from house arrest. Chains around his ankles. That doesn't sound like a real powerful kingdom. And you got to wonder, is this kind of like the, the Canadian girlfriend? Um, when, when I was in high school, it was, uh, there was always the guy who couldn't get a date to the dance. And because he couldn't get a, a date to the dance, his explanation was, I have this girlfriend, but she lives in Canada. And, um, and she can't come. And then it was always, you know, a picture from a magazine. See, this is her. Um, and so, so the reason that he wasn't at the dance was because Canadian girlfriend couldn't make it. And so you look at this and you say, Paul, do you just kind of have this fictional kingdom that's going on? Like, you're obviously not a very powerful guy. You've got chains around your ankles. You've lost everything in your life. You're the weakest guy in the world. You're going to die five years from now. You've got the powerful empire of Rome against you. It seems like you're really just uh, a loser. And so are you as a loser making up this whole kingdom to try to make it look like things are not as bad as they are? But actually, this is the very nature of the kingdom that we're part of. The kingdom that Jesus has made us part of doesn't wield power in the same way that the kingdoms of the world do. In the world, you fight your way to the top. You fight, 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 and you get on top of everybody else. You're the most powerful one. You get there by fear, by force, by wealth, and everybody else loses out because you're on top. But in the kingdom of God, the most powerful one there is in our kingdom, our king, Jesus, he went straight to the bottom. He went all the way down. He died on the cross, and he was buried in the grave. And that was the greatest moment of power and triumph that there's ever been. So we've got a very real kingdom, but it's a kingdom that flips all the values of the world on their head. Where where all the things that we tried to do before to climb our way to the top, we learned are not the way to really get to the top. Jesus says, go to the bottom. The least among you will be the first. The one who gives the most is the one who gets the most. The one who lays his life down and lays his rights down is the one who finds them all again. That's what our kingdom looks like. And so here's Paul in prison And I don't think he feels like a loser. I think he's seeing that he's kind of sharing some of the sufferings of Christ. That he's following in the footsteps of Christ. That the way to get to the top in this kingdom is by laying down your life. And his life has been laid down. 
And so he doesn't feel weak at all. He doesn't feel like a victim at all. He is powerful. And this is important for us to get when we go through our trials because we can just feel like we're victims of them and we can feel like we're always down, we're always low, we're always under everybody else. We have less than them. We have less power, less money, less influence. We feel like we're at the bottom. Paul says in this kingdom, the bottom is the top. That is where we triumph. We win by losing. We become whole by being broken. And so if you're in one of those trials where it seems like God is breaking you, it feels like you're losing, it feels like you can never get on top, maybe you really are on the top. You're in that place where you're giving all and your life is looking more and more like Jesus. And if you can start to see that that's how God's kingdom spreads, that's how his reign spreads, as his people lay down their lives and give and serve and love those around them and become less, then you can start to realize maybe this is winning. Maybe this is the place I am supposed to be, closer and closer to where Jesus was at his most powerful moment, which was on a cross. So we really have this kingdom that can't be shaken. We've got some really good news that he's involved us in and this great kingdom that he's made us part of, and he calls us to see it. And so when you're going through those trials and things are dark, just remember the power of God that's worked in your past. If he started something, he'll finish it. Remember what a big deal it is that you're a Christian, that there's nothing better in the world. And remember that sometimes when you're at the bottom, you actually are at the top. That is the way to to have power in this kingdom. So for now, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Well, Christians, as we go through what we go through, the question is, do we have joy there? Not that we enjoy the circumstances. I don't think it's expected that we would enjoy all the trials that we go through. But can we find joy in any circumstance? Can we be like Paul, who's, who's imprisoned, but still giving thanks all the time? Or do we just get obsessed with our trials and feel like they're the worst thing that could ever happen? We're reminded here that the best thing that could possibly happen to anyone has happened to us. We're Christians. This is far greater than winning the lottery. We have it all. All things are ours. So let's preach that truth to ourselves as we go through our trials. And if we find that we're in a trial where we can't find any joy at all, let's remind ourselves of the power of God in our past, his his work in our present, his reign in the future, that he's working all things out for good, even when we can't see how he's doing it. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I want you to know that Jesus has invited you into this kingdom. And the way you come into the kingdom is not by performing to to work your way in. It's not by doing a bunch of good things to get God impressed with you. The the way to the top in this kingdom is is by going to the bottom. So you start just by admitting that you've sinned. You've sinned and you've fallen short of the glory of God. Admit that you've broken his commands. Admit that you do deserve for the hyper-mega power of God to be channeled against you. But then instead of trying to solve the problem on your own, trust that Jesus solved it. Trust that Jesus Christ, who's all God and all man, came to this earth and he absorbed that wrath of God on your behalf. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. So that the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So turn from sin, turn from unbelief, turn from whatever was driving you before, and turn to Christ. Hang your life on him, trust in him, hope in him, call out to him. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, calling on him is not just a matter of reciting certain words, but from the depth of your heart saying, God, I'm sinful and I know it. I've fallen short and I know it. I deserve your wrath and I know it. But Jesus, I believe that you died for me and you were buried and you rose again. So I'm turning from my sin and my unbelief and the other gods I was chasing. I'm turning from my selfishness and I'm hanging it all on you, trusting in you and you alone. And if that's where your heart is, he promises to receive you. He promises to wash away that sin. He promises that he's absorbed that hyper-mega power of God that would have been against you and now he's channeled it all so it's for you. He's adopted you and called you his son or his daughter and he'll only always be for you from here and through all eternity. And that's great news, and it's, it's news that can cause us to find joy even in the midst of, of deep and dark trials. Father, we want this. We want to believe this stuff, Lord. We, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Because, Lord, if we believe this, we would be different. Uh, we, we wouldn't despair without hope. We'd still mourn. Uh, we'd still experience pain. We'd still suffer. But Lord, we do it with an underlying hope that you're good and you're working all things together for our good. So help us to believe this, Lord. Break up the unbelief in our hearts. Remove all those clouds of doubt that are still there. Lord, help us to believe not just that you're there. Help us not just to believe that you're powerful, but help us to believe that you're for us. And help us to believe it by looking to your cross. Lord, make us worshipers who, who are different, even in our trials, even in our pain. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.